I wonder what you do when you, you get to texts in the Bible uh, and find questions. By questions, I don't mean ones that are introduced in the text, but questions you have as you read the text and are trying to understand what they mean. Certainly you know this is a certainty when it comes to reading the Bible. In fact, oftentimes the biblical authors expect that there will be questions. They preempt the questions oftentimes and and presuppose people are going to have them and then say, I know you're thinking this, so here's the answer to that, right? Certain texts feel harder than other texts. I know that oftentimes when we uh, talk with people who are new believers, recently fallen in love with Jesus and come to know and love his word, Diving into the Bible, have question after question after question after question, and it's a wonderful thing, but it can also feel pretty overwhelming. You wonder what we do with passages like these, and so that's why I ask you, what do you do when you run into passages that might be hard to understand? This is an important concept to get your mind around as you go through the book of Hebrews. Anyone who's read through the entire book of Hebrews is undoubtedly going to be faced with certain questions. The passage we're going to cover today is going to introduce at least one of those for us. I'm going to try to deal with a very natural question that arises from the text we're going to cover today. And I hope to do this for you because I think that there are two possible, maybe more, but at least two possible errors that can happen when you read a text like this one and have some of those natural questions. One might be that you think that the biblical authors don't know what the other biblical authors mean. And the other, it could perhaps even be worse, that when we see things that inspire questions, it might make us turn our eyes away from the text, away from the Bible, say it just has too many difficulties, and then we don't engage with it the way we ought to. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to read through our passage today. We're in Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 5 through 8. 5 through 9, I'm going to read through. We're only going to actually get through verse 8 today. I'm going to read this out loud, uh, pray, and then we're going to go back again through it a few times. I'm going to show you what I think the question is, and then try to make application as we answer that question throughout the sermon. Let's let's go ahead and, and read through that text and then pray. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. Putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him. He left nothing outside his control. At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Let's pray. Lord, I do not know who here today might struggle with passages like this. I do know that we miss things in verses like this all the time. And so, Lord, I I ask for a supernatural help. Lord, reveal to us why it is this is here, what we're supposed to learn about ourselves, about Jesus, that we may leave here with a greater trust in your word and a greater love for who you are, as well as a greater understanding of who we are and what you have promised to us. So Lord, we we ask for this help as we read through this this morning in Jesus' name, amen. 
Here's the question that I think naturally arises from a text like this. Does this passage have anything to say about us, humankind? Or is it really only about Jesus? Now we're going to see that this is clearly going to land by verse 9. It's going to clearly bring up Jesus. In fact, it's the first place in the book of Hebrews that the word Jesus shows up. The name Jesus doesn't appear until verse 9, one of the last verses I just read out loud. But does this passage, he's, 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 he's giving us some teaching, he's going to try to claim, make a claim from the Old Testament. Does both this teaching and the citation from the Old Testament, does it refer to mankind? Or is it really he's talking just about Jesus? Now, this really does matter. There are people who have left the Christian faith because of questions like that in verses exactly as this one. Because it refers to how we should see the New Testament authors citing Old Testament passages and the way that they apply them. You know, a lot of Christians, even those who remain with the faith, when they have questions like this, like, well, what should we do with a psalm that appears to be about one thing, but is used by the New Testament author to point to a different thing? Is this because the authors are making an error? This is because the Old Testament is so superseded by the New that we should never even read the Old Testament, trust the Old Testament, go back into it at all anymore? The answer to both of those is, of course, no. So here's a hypothesis I'm going to make for you today. I'm going to aim to show you this from the text, and we're probably going to need two weeks to unpack what's going on in this passage here. So I'm going to do a portion of this passage today and a portion next week. Here's, here's the statement that I'm making about what I'm hoping to convey through this sermon about this passage. I think that the statements here, to include the cited verses from Psalm 8, were written about mankind. And Jesus, as the chief representative of mankind, ultimately fulfills and secures the statements made about us. I'm going to read the passage five through nine. One more time. Have that question in mind. Does this passage have anything to do with us or Jesus? I think it's us. And then Jesus is our chief representative. This is also true about him in even a greater way. So let me read five through nine. See what you think. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in submitting every, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So I want you to remember the text for a second. Let's zoom out for a moment and think about the context. The point of chapter 1 was to show that the Old Testament scriptures declare that the Messiah would be greater than the angels. It's why the first chapter is there. The majority of the first chapter deals with that issue. Chapter 2, 1 through 4, what we went through the last couple of weeks, told us that we should pay much closer attention to the new covenant 
even than the old, because this one was put in place by God himself. That's the flow where we're going. And last week we covered verse 4. It said, and it was authenticated by miraculous signs and wonders. The new covenant was. So that none should doubt its truthfulness and its gravity. And that leads us in to where we are today. Going to verse 5. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. So back to our question. Is this talking about man or is this talking about Jesus? Mankind generally or Jesus specifically? It is true that this sentence could be applied either to Jesus or to us in slightly different ways. First, is the most obvious to us, Jesus is and will be the ruling king of all creation forever. There's no doubt for a believer about this. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. He is the final and ultimate king of kings and lord of lords. We walked through this handful of weeks past. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that right now, Jesus is literally seated at the right hand of God, and he is waiting until all of his enemies shall be made a footstool for his feet. Then comes the end. Okay, So, so this is definitely true that Jesus will be an ultimate, final, complete, absolute authority over the world to come, as he is today. But the promise to rule and reign over the world to come has also been extended to us, to believers, to the people of God. Let me show you a few places we see this, both Old and New Testament, it says this, but even it's the New Testament, using the same language here. Matthew 5, 5, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek will will get the earth as an inheritance. Romans 4.13, Paul speaks of the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world. So what is his inheritance? What is the inheritance of Abraham and his offspring? The world. In fact, if you're going to go to the very last chapter of the whole Bible, Revelation chapter 22, verse 5 says this, And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, the saints in heaven. We will need no light or lamp, or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Okay? This reigning language, subjecting the world, could be true about us. Now, I suspect that the author already clues us in to whom he's talking about here by his word choice. You see, the word world here, it's not to angels that God subjected the world to come. The word world is iskumenin. It means inhabited world. It's only used 15 times in the New Testament, as opposed to the much more common word cosmos for the world, which can refer to every atom of all creation and is used 183 times in the New Testament. So this is a much more limited use word for a much more limited purpose. It's talking about this inhabited world. The kingdoms, the kings, the peoples of this world, the animals that dwell on it. He already uses that word instead of cosmos. This isn't every atom of the universe being subjected, but the inhabited world. Also, the author has already made the point that Jesus is currently in absolute, unmitigated authority over everything that exists. The world is presently subjected under the authority of Jesus. And it would seem odd to me that the author was revisiting this point yet again and presenting additional scriptural proofs for it, yet he already made that case in chapter 1. 
Additionally, the author has already switched gears from asserting the Messiah's supremacy over the angels to our response to his gospel. The author has been, and I think he still is arguing, why we should pay such careful attention to the message of the new covenant. In other words, he switched his attention to us in this interlude. He continues on in verse 6. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? This is yet another reason that I think it's talking primarily about us, because look what it says right there in verse 6. It has been testified somewhere. Now, if you were following carefully in chapter 1 as we went through over and over all the seven different scripture citations of the Old Testament. Every time, it doesn't say, and you just will find it somewhere. Somebody said somewhere. Every time it says, he said, God said of the Son. Just look back there in chapter one, if you have it with you. For to which of the angels did God ever say? Then he quotes a psalm. Or again, quotes another psalm. Of the angels, he says. But of the Son, he says. And to which of the angels has he ever said? These are the way that the first chapter citations are made. But here it says, it has been testified somewhere. Of those seven citations that were attributed to God, here we see something different. Now, why does the author do this? I I think because the other texts were from God's perspective speaking about Jesus. But this text is from the perspective of man talking about God. We're going to see in a moment, this is is a psalm of David. He's writing this down. But this statement could be rightly made by any one of us. And so in, in one sense, you could just say, anyone could say, who is man that you are mindful of him or son of man? Anyone could say that because it would be true from all of our perspectives. It's different. So let's take a look at this citation. It might help us. This is from Psalm chapter 8. What is man that you are mindful of? If you have your Bibles open, go to Psalm chapter 8. I'm going to read it out loud. It's just nine short verses. I'm just going to read that to give us the context. What did did David have in mind when he wrote this psalm? I'll read this to you. Psalm chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I think that this psalm is invariably about humankind. Some see Son of Man being referred to here in chapter 8, verse 4, and then also referenced in our passage in Hebrews 2 today. Some see the term Son of Man as referring to Jesus. And that makes sense, right? Because if you read through the New Testament, Jesus' favorite identifier for himself as he's preaching is Son of Man. He calls himself Son of Man. 
Almost certainly evoking one passage back in Daniel chapter 7, where one like the Son of Man comes and he is the Messiah figure. And Jesus is referring to that passage when he does that. And yes, that's very true. But Son of Man is used more than 190 times in the Old Testament, always, 100% of the time, referring to man. Even in Daniel chapter 7, the point of the reference is that he's one like a son of man. The Messiah coming, this great and mighty king coming to the ancient of days, is one like a son of man. He's going to look like a man. He's like one of us. That's the whole point. This here in this psalm is a parallelism. It's two phrases saying essentially the same thing. They're all over the Bible. Some of you might know this if you've ever studied the way that the, especially the Old Testament refers to these things. Psalms and Proverbs most specifically. I'm just going to show you one quick place here that might be helpful. Job 25, 4 through 6. This is a place we see another parallelism using the same language, the same words, and the same argument. Okay? Job says, How then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? Behold, even the moon is not bright, and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man who is a maggot, and the son of man who is a worm. You see the parallel? Man and son of man are thought of in the same way. So we see in Numbers 23, 19, I, I cite to you often, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. Those are parallel thoughts. The point is God is not a human. He's not one of us. Also, if this verse was meant to be talking about Jesus, if Psalm 8, verse 4, meant to talk about the Messiah, it wouldn't make any sense. Because it would be saying, oh God, why would you care about the Messiah? Of course every Jew knew that the Father cared about the Messiah who he was going to send. No Jewish, no Hebrew mind would have thought, yeah, God doesn't care about the Messiah. They would all have known this. This is why all the New Testament Pharisees had something different in mind, because they were expecting... Somebody who is well-dressed by God to be the one coming. They expected, of course, he would be cared for by God. Of course, God would be mindful of that Messiah, Son of Man. This is saying, why would God care about us? What prompts David to ask the question in verse 4? Our Hebrews author, he picks up uh, this psalm and he picks it up at a point. But what, what is said by David just prior to that point? What's, what's bringing it in? I'm going to read to you. Let's go ahead and put it up here. Psalm 8, verses 3 through 4. This is David saying, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You see that? This should be our reaction when we gaze into the heavens. Not to see ourselves as much, but as little. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. You know, don't you, that tiny, insignificant feeling you get when you stand on the top of a mountain? You know that feeling. You know, when, you know that feeling of looking up into the expanse of the stars on a night where you get far away from the the, uh, the light pollution of the urban areas and get out in the middle of nowhere and you look up and you see just billions of stars, countless numbers of stars out there in the galaxy. And 
You know that feeling, don't you? The feeling so small. We're still on the shore of an ocean. Have you ever, have you ever swam in the ocean? Like far enough out that the boat stops, you can get out and swim there. I, I went around the continent of South America on a ship. It took about, about four months uh, as, as a Marine, I was stationed on a naval vessel, and uh, it, was a, it was a common practice that when you crossed the equator, they'd stop the ship, everyone could jump out, swim across the equator, get back on, and it was just kind of a fun experience to say you swam across the equator. Have you ever floated in the middle of the ocean and known that there were thousands of feet beneath you and had that, because you feel so small? Creation is designed to produce that feeling. You know, even the person who thinks this is not my problem, I, I really think it is. What's the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But the chief error of man is to glorify man to make much of himself. Think, what was the first lie that produced the first sin? You too can be like God. God. God wouldn't try to keep that from you. Did God really say? First lie, you too can be like him. You're not different. You're not less. You can have that too. Some of this perversion of thinking is going to plague every minute of your day Every week, every day for the rest of this week, for the rest of your life. As a result of your fallen human nature, you are predisposed to think too much of yourself. Someone might claim, but Rich, my problem is that I don't think very highly of myself at all. I have low self-esteem. No, your problem is that you think too much of yourself. Think about this. Even the person who has low self-esteem, why does that person get anxious? Because they wake up and look in the mirror and they think of themselves as less than someone else. They compare their work to somebody else's work. Their mothering to somebody else's mothering. Their looks compared to somebody else's looks. Their household and all they can produce and have gained in their life against somebody else's. It's because you're thinking too much about yourself. That's the problem. The world tells you the solution to that problem is to think better of you. No! Stand on the mountain, look up and say, oh, that's the solution to low self-esteem is that it's too high. Always think about yourself too much. You always plan about yourself too much. You and I both. This is our human condition, our error. This psalmist regards the heavens and rightly asks the question, why, oh, why do you care about us? The world is exactly the opposite impulse that has been trained into them by the suppression of the truth. You know this, don't you? You know, we don't have any pets for our kids. A handful of reasons for that. Number one, we are still doing the diaper thing. We only will clean up one, we'll clean up after one kind of critter at a time, we say. So I expect someday we will. We will have some pets. But one of the reasons that we aren't super excited about introducing that yet is because I know three days after they get that hamster, they're not going to care about it the same. The interest is going to fade, it's going to happen. And then all of a sudden, who's taking out the puppy? Who's cleaning up after the turtle? Who's 
you know this, anyone who's ever had kids or as a kid has had pets, you know this happens. Even if the interest remains, it's never like it was day one. Even a goldfish, an ant farm, we don't care the same as time marches on. I want you to think, think about us distinct from God in creation. If you can imagine a chasm of difference between the value, worth, dignity of a person and a goldfish, that chasm is infinitely widened between the value, worth, dignity of a creator and his creatures. Yet, that's the word in the Psalms, yet he loves us. That's what David says, that in spite of the fact that we are entirely undeserving, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. God, I look at the stars and I see the majesty of what you can create with the breath of your mouth. I consider how small I am, and yet you've made me an image bearer. You have given me value and dignity, intrinsic worth higher than that of the creatures. Not just a little bit, a lot. We are worth far more than many sparrows. You've made them for a little while lower than the angels. In spite of our unworthiness, we are graciously crowned with glory and honor. Now, this is where some Christians might get uncomfortable with thinking about this as talking about man. Okay? You might have that right now. Whoa, you're, this is us? Yes, you. That's my argument. I think that's what David meant. I think that's what the author of Hebrews knows. You have made mankind for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned mankind with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under mankind's feet. I do think that's the case. Now, if you have an impulse that's pressing up against you, that's a good impulse. Because we just got through saying that when you stand before creation, you should think of yourself as small, right? So it's a good impulse to be, whoa, 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 not me glorious, not me honor, honor worthy, not me things subjection under my feet. That's a good impulse. So how should we think about this? I don't think the honor part is quite the problem. You and I probably see all over the Bible places where even non-believers are told to have honor or, or deserving of honor. We are to honor the emperor. Give honor to where honor is due. Honor one another, right? Honor your father and your mother. Okay, the idea of giving that kind of honor might not be a problem with you and your minds quite as much as the glory part. What about the glory part? Glory, biblically speaking, is prestige, renown, acclaim, and it is applied to humans in both the Old Testament and the New Testament in appropriate contexts. So just to get our minds on right about this, and here's my quick disclaimer, not in the notes. I know we live in Utah, and I know that the central error of the LDS church is that man can become God and receive all the glory due to God alone. And as Christians, we go, oh, oh, 
beloved neighbors and friends who, who heard these things. This is not what the Bible tells us. So you might have an even stronger impulse to go, no, 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 glory for me. I don't want to go down the exaltation path of things. Let's, let's, let's get our heads right around this. What does the Bible say about mankind and glory? A couple of Old Testament examples, a couple of New Testament. Job 19.9. Job says, he has stripped from me, God has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. What does Job mean? He had lost everything, all of his possessions, his prestige, his acclaim, his accumulated wealth. That's what he's meaning when he says that glory. That kind of use of the word glory is gone. Psalm 49. David will say in verses 16 through 17, Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. So he uses that term to refer to the same kind of thing. Matthew 6, 29, Jesus says, don't worry about what you wear. And he says this about Solomon. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. It's the same word that's used here in Hebrews when they're using the Greek. John 12, 43, Jesus indicts Pharisees, and this is what he says about them. For they, the Pharisees, loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. You see, in, you see in the way the Bible talks about glory referring to man? It doesn't mean ultimate praise and worship receiving. But there is a kind of glory that is crowned on the head of a man. Image bearer. One over creation. In fact, Hebrews 2.10 couple of verses after what we read today, says this. I'll show it to you. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So what's the author trying to say right here is that many sons, that's children of God, adopted sons and daughters of God, will be brought to glory. In some way, this is used right here. This is what the author has in mind, that that glory is going to be given to us. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. What do we do with that? The psalmist qualifies this subjection. He defines it. It's helpful when an author defines for you, what do you mean when you say everything? Do you mean like there's not an atom in the universe that we're not in control over? No, he doesn't mean that. He actually says it in chapter 8, verses 6 through 8, the same psalm we've been citing. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things, the Greek will render that everything, under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. It's pretty well defined. In fact, this is almost exactly the dominion that David had in mind, pointing back to creation. Look at Genesis 1.28. And God blessed them. This is Adam and Eve. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Do you see in the kind of subjection he's talking about here? Now, the author provides two comments on this passage that I would be thinking as I read through this, applied to man, and maybe you do too. That's what he says in the next, next verse, or the second half of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, mankind, 
he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So two statements. Nothing is outside his control. Nothing and everything here are equally exhaustive. So if we're to see any limits on the word everything, just like I think we saw, it's talking about creation, the, the, the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the animals in the ocean. That's the everything. Nothing of that everything is outside of his control. It's already qualified by this passage as all the living things on earth. By created design, we have been placed at the top of the food chain. It's God's design. If you were to say, Rich, there are so many things that seem to be out of our control. How can you say that this could possibly refer to mankind? There's so much that we look around and we see outside of our control. I would say that's exactly what the author says next. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So you and I will not see, understand what he just made the claim of in the statement prior. It's not going to look that way. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So what's the point? God intended for all things to be subjected to mankind. And yet, now, currently, because of sin, the earth wars against us. Remember what happened after the creation uh, account and the dominion mandates to do the earth. We just read Genesis 1.28. Take charge of all of those critters on the planet. Do you remember what happened at the fall? God cursed the serpent. God cursed Eve after this person. And God cursed the ground. And what's the ground going to do now? As Adam was supposed to work the garden. What's the ground going to do now? It's going to fight back. It's going to produce thorns and thistles, and by the sweat of your face shall you eat of it. That's the problem now for you. You still have to eat the same way you would have eaten then, in that you would have produced, you'd have gardened, you'd have done this work, and it used to be a joy, a thrill, no, no, no sweat to do it, and now it's going to fight back against you. The mandate is the same. The work will now produce blood, sweat, and tears. We will be restored to our place of dominion over the new heavens and the new earth. Right now, we don't see it fully. We know what the mandate was. We know what the dominion plan was supposed to be. And it's not fulfilled finally. This is why it says back in verse 5 where we started, it was not to angels that God subjected this world. No, no. Subjected the world to come. New heavens, new earth. Where the world will not war against mankind is it subjected to us? This crowned with glory and honor, everything in subjection, this language, will be fulfilled in the new heavens and in the new earth. However, the author of Hebrews takes this psalm that was written primarily, originally, to talk about mankind's smallness compared to God, and yet the mandate placed upon him even as small compared to God. And the author of Hebrews will show us that it has an even greater application in Jesus. We're going to get to that next week. God's plan of redemption was not 
for the angels. It was for us. The message of the gospel is proclaimed not for the angels, but for us. He's going to make that point several more times in the rest of this chapter. He switched gears from telling us of only, as his primary point, the greatness of the Messiah over and above the rest of creation, namely angels. And he's now going to switch it to, look, and it's not even two angels that this whole new plan is for. It's for you, whom he has subjected the world to come. That as you look at the stars, you realize your smallness, and yet you are the ones who need to pay much closer attention Next, we're going to see, next week, we're going to see how this psalm being drawn and pointed at this is a man is now finally, fully, and perfectly applied, namely, to Jesus. When you consider that you are a worm, to use Job's words, a maggot, as he says, quickly remember that God showed great love for you, maggot. By sending his son. God showed his love for us. And that while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Not for the angels. Not for the dogs. Not for the trees. Not for the stars. For us. This is why. When we have those moments. And realize the bigness of things. As believers. We ought to love that feeling. We ought to love that feeling of the smallness because it should instantly be followed by the reminder that he loved even this guy. The world, in one of its great errors, tries to make man much and God less. You know, you know this, that there's, a, there's an attempt to bring down how great and holy and mighty and perfect and just God is and how good we can be. The problem is then it crushes God's great love every step. As believers, we sing about creation. We sing about the bigness of God and the smallness of man because that is the chasm he crossed. Jesus did not just become a glory-worthy creature. Jesus became the maggot, the worm. The who are we to deserve such love? I know that some people might hear this and think, it's just just crazy way of thinking. We're supposed to think of ourselves as small and loved in a big way at the same time. Yes, that's the gospel. If you have trouble thinking of yourself as small, all you have to do is measure your works. That's all you got to do. If you have those moments you're thinking, I'm doing pretty good. Really count your sins. It's one of the values of when we do communion together. Bradley introduced that we do communion. You're supposed to pause for a moment and think, my goodness, I'm not worthy of this. If there's anything in me naturally that could be said, man, I'm, a, I'm an image bearer of God. This is great. Yes, but you crushed that status over and over and over and over again. You've undermined it by all of your sins. It doesn't matter who you are today. You have sinned against a perfect, righteous, and holy God. And because of that sin, you are going to stand before him justly condemned. It'll be good, holy, and righteous. It'll be the most perfect thing that God can do to send you to everlasting hell. And yet, God loved us so much that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Have you received that gospel? If you haven't realized that, 
If you've gotten one of those two things, I said on the mountaintop experience, if you've experienced one of those, I'm little, and you haven't experienced the, but God's love reached down here, then you need to talk to someone before you leave today. I'd love to pray with you. Any other Christian here would be thrilled to talk with you about how it is that we can have that love. How can we receive that? By belief in Jesus. As we close this morning, I want to remind you that we are little. God is big, and his love for us is bigger than we can ever imagine. Let's pray. Father, this morning, as we read these kinds of passages, sometimes we have to answer these questions in order to see why you have this here before us. But Lord, the kind of thing that we need to internalize here are the kinds of words that come off of the pen of David when he rightly acknowledges the smallness of man as our sin, as the world around us displays. But Lord, at the same time, we know that you've done something great and majestic for us. Thank you for sending your son in human likeness that he would come live a perfect life, die terrible, murderous death for us that we may live forever with you if we believe in him. Father, I pray that you would help us to internalize these things, know them, humble ourselves before your word, seek to find the answers to these hard questions and grow in our love for you because of them. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.